One of the great things about Elam is that this church follows the lectionary. I think John talked about this a little bit last week, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago. Um, the lectionary is a series of readings that um, covers the entire Bible. And one of the reasons I love that is there are many things in the church, this is in the older churches too, but in the modern church, where Christians are divided. We disagree on who should have authority, the authority structures, who we should answer to. Many churches disagree with each other on theology. Um, but one of the few things that many of us, probably the majority of churches, do together is read the lectionary. Anybody know where the first, um, the, the day Sunday today was first started? What was the first island? It'll be somewhere in the mid-Pacific that uh, Sunday came first to them. I think it's a little island called Kiribati. It has some churches on it. And there will have been people who have been 20 hours ago who would have read these words and people would have preached on them. And then as the hours rolled through from then till now, the last 20 hours, church after church, and actually probably millions of churches, congregations, fellowships, all around the world, across Australia, China, India, Africa, Europe, and then in the Americas, again and again, they would have heard the same words and thought about the same things. And I think that's a tremendous thing. But it does have flaws. It's not perfect. The biggest flaw, I think, is that it forces us to chop the Bible up into little pieces. And if we're dealing with Psalms or with wisdom literature, that's not such a terrible thing because those were meant to be heard and understood in small pieces. But the, gospel of, uh, the Gospels generally, and especially the Gospel of Mark, wasn't designed to be heard that way. As best we know, Mark wrote his Gospel uh, based on P Peter's teachings and other teachings in the early church in the mid-60s, um, so about 30 years after Jesus' death. And he wrote it down to be a single document that was copied and distributed to many churches around the Mediterranean to be read aloud often as a single reading in congregations. It takes about an hour and a half to read all of Mark, um, so about the length of a movie. And most people in those congregations couldn't read, so there would be one person who would read it out loud, and everyone else would listen, and you would hear the sweep of, of uh, Mark's narrative. And so what we're doing today is it's almost like we're taking one tiny little scene in that movie. So out of the 90 minutes of listening, this would have been about a minute, a minute and a half. It's about five minutes into the narrative, into the, the story that we're hearing, and trying to understand that small piece. We heard a piece just before it last week where Jesus called his disciples, two weeks before that where uh, Jesus is baptized, and next week we'll hear the piece right after where Jesus uh, cures uh, Simon's mother-in-law. And then over the year, because this is the year in the lectionary where Mark is the main gospel that we read, uh, we'll hear more of the gospel. But we're just coming in into a tiny moment of it. So if we're going to 
trying to understand what this uh, reading is about and how we're supposed to understand it. We have to both um, listen to it very carefully and recognize that it, it exists in a larger context. The core of this section, I think, is the question that the, the, fellow, the congregation members in the synagogue ask each other after Jesus um, casts out the demon, after he's preached and after he's cast out the demon. And that's the question, what new teaching is this? And that's the question I want us to come back to a few times this morning. What new teaching is this? We know a few things. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus actually said. He doesn't sort of give a summary of his sermon. But we know that uh, he was um, allowed to preach. The rabbi would have considered him a man of authority and, and be allowed to preach. And we know that the preaching was astonishing. The, Mark uses this phrase, oh, this word over and over in his gospel, that people's reaction to what they hear from Jesus is astonishment, amazement. This was not a, a few kind of good words sort of said in a corner and a few people went, oh, that seems okay. This was a man who comes into a community, comes into a congregation, comes into a crowd, says some things, and people are astonished. But what are they astonished about? This whole section has a number of themes that tell us, give us some indication of what was this moment of astonishment, what caused this. One thing, of course, is after he preached, a man stood up and started yelling, and um, what do you want with us, Holy One of God? A man possessed by demons, and the demon is yelling. Well, yelling in churches is not a common thing in, in North America these days. I think I've only ever been in one service where someone stood up and yelled. And that, wasn't, that isn't always true in every Christian tradition. Um, uh, outbursts, spiritual epiphanies, uh, pro words of prophecy are common in many traditions, early in our traditions, and uh, in other traditions now around the world. But they weren't common in a synagogue. As far as we can tell, people were polite in synagogues. People did not suddenly stand up and yell. And the other thing that's really odd about this is it wouldn't have been common if someone was known to be possessed by a demon to even allow them in the synagogue. We uh, encounter Jesus, uh, Jesus encounters uh, another demon-possessed man, possessed by legion, in a few chapters, and there the man has been thrown out of the community and has to go live in the tombs, in the graveyard. And so people possessed by demons were not considered acceptable members of society. So the fact that this man suddenly stands up or suddenly starts, the voice in him suddenly starts screaming would have been astonishing. And then Jesus' reaction to it would have been astonishing. People thought that demon possession was a fairly common thing in Jesus' world, but and there were people who claimed to be able to exercise demons, uh, but they didn't do it the way Jesus does it in this reading. Uh, it was a typical thing where you would have lots of fancy words and mysterious incantations and wands, and I almost think it's like Harry Potter kind of stuff to cast out demons. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just says, 
come out. Be silent, come out. And the demon immediately does exactly as he's told. So that would have been astonishing too. The fact that the person is demon-possessed, not astonishing. How Jesus dealt with him and how the demon reacted to him, astonishing. There are a number of themes in this first chapter, these first few readings, first two or three chapters, that occur again and again in Mark's narrative, and that we see in this in this sequence, in in the story of, of what happened in the synagogue. And when I use the word story, I don't mean hey, Mark made up a nice story. I mean that he's documenting the very best he can what actually happened based on Peter and the other eyewitnesses. So some of the themes, there's casting out of demons a number of times. This is the first one of them, um, but it happens uh, later that evening, it happens around Capernaum, it happens around Galilee. This is one of the main things Jesus was known for doing and did do. And the other thing is, there is the contrast in this scene and in the scene before and after of the holy and the unholy. So, for instance, when John is preaching before Jesus comes to be baptized, he says, one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then, when Jesus is coming out of the water after the baptism, the Holy Spirit tears open the heavens and descends on them. And then the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the desert. And there he encounters both the unholy spirit, Satan, an unholy spiritual entity, and angels who come to attend him. And then the unholy spirit in this man, the demon in this man, recognizes Jesus as a holy one. Who are you? Why have you come to bother us? You are the holy one of God. So all the way through, and it's not just in that section and then Mark leaves it, this happens all the way through this first sequence, where the first eight or nine chapters, where unholiness and holiness are brought together, are in collision, all around and in the experience and life and teaching of Jesus. Then the other thing that I think is important to highlight is the issue of authority. It would be easy if we think, okay, well, this is a story, uh, it's a narrative, let's try to uh, interpret it in modern terms. Um, so if there's unholiness and holiness and there's some kind of contest going on, uh, maybe it's like a superhero movie where there's good guys and bad guys, or uh, um, uh, what was that movie about so-called secret revelations in the Vatican, where there were angels and demons, maybe it's something like that, right? Mark's narrative does not follow that structure at all. Jesus is not like the superhero who comes under great strain, who's beat up and then finally at the end figures out how to vanquish the bad guys. That's not what Mark is talking about. And that's not the story he wants his audience to hear. He wants them to hear a narrative about authority. So John predicts 
one greater than me. He says, the person coming after me will have more authority than me, even though all of Judea is coming to me for baptism. The next person will have more authority than me. When Jesus comes out of the, the water and the dove comes, the spirit like a dove comes down on him, then the voice, which we're clearly meant to understand as the voice of God, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The voice confers, affirms the authority of Jesus. The fact that angels minister to Jesus in the desert is again a confirmation of authority. Angels don't minister to lesser beings. Angels are attendants in this scene, in that moment, as servants to Jesus. And last week we heard about the disciples. The disciples clearly felt Jesus was a voice of authority. He simply walks up to them. All Mark tells us, he walks up to them and says, follow me. And they do it. And the congregation members in our particular reading today, they respond, this is what they respond to most clearly, is there is authority in this man, in his teachings, in what he's doing. And crucially, the spirits, so-called the evil spirits, unclean spirits, demons, also respond to it. The demons, as soon as they talk, every time they encounter Jesus, as soon as they talk, they say, you are the Holy One of God. You are the Anointed. What do you want with us? And they know from the moment, first moment of encounter that they are already defeated. There's no contest here. There's simply Jesus coming into the situation where there are demons and controlling them, casting them out. It's not actually a secret what point Mark is trying to make in all of this. He tells us in his title, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, Son of God. He's already saying it right from the very first sentence. And this makes sense if we think about how this gospel would have been used and received in the early churches. So if you think about, here's a, a document that comes from an authority, Mark, working from Peter, being distributed through all of the churches, and then it's read in the church. We don't quite know, was it read in the, in the evening, around a fellowship table, or was it, did it consume the whole service, or did services go on all day, or was it used in uh, um, education and training for new Christians, but it was spoken not in a context of unbelievers, of people you're trying to convince of something, but of believers, and new believers and their families, um, to say, this is what actually has happened in the beginning of the Gospel. So they're listening 30, 40 years after Jesus, after Jesus' death and resurrection. They already know about his death and his resurrection. They already know about the presence in, in their lives and their congregations. And so, Mark is trying to, again and again, emphasize a few core ideas that Jesus is the anointed, holy Son of God, that he comes with authority, that his authority is recognized. Mark is also trying to convince us, I think, that 
what's happened with Jesus is that the, the heavenly realms, the voice, the dove, the angels, are breaking into our earthly world. He's trying to convince us, or he's trying to show, tell them, confirm to his audience. It's the Holy Spirit that drives events in these in these in these scenes. It's not just a, a like a itinerant preacher wandering around and people think it's kind of interesting. There is a sense um, right from the moment that the dove, the spirit descends, that the spirit is driving events, drives Jesus into the desert. Jesus enters into into Galilee, proclaiming, comes into the synagogue in Capernaum preaching and proclaiming and casting out demons. That sense of driving um, would have been clearer to the first listeners because the word for spirit is pneuma. I think that's how you pronounce it. Pneuma? I, don't, I know less Greek, hardly any Greek. Um, it's the same word for uh, wind and for God's voice and for the spirit um, stirring up our hearts. So. The listeners would have known about the mighty rushing wind that came into the apostles after the resurrection, came into the upper room with them. That mighty rushing wind didn't appear for the first time in that room. That mighty rushing wind was driving the entire story of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and his resurrection. The other point of view that, Mike, that um, Mark has and wants his listeners to, to uh, confirm and absorb is that while Jesus astonishes people, they are slow to understand. One of the distinctive features of the Gospels, and it's most distinctive in Mark, but it's even in some of the others, is how dopey the apostles were. They get everything wrong over and over and over. But at the end of this whole section in chapter 8 where um, Peter confirms, declares finally that Jesus is the Messiah, two verses later, he's screwing up again and Jesus rebukes him. It's one of the things that, that convinces me this is an early uh, history. Because if we've been two or three generations down from the original apostles, everybody would be would not say bad things about them. These are the authorities in the church. I think what's going on in this is the apostles, especially Peter, because Peter comes in for the worst stories about stupidity and dopiness and, and not getting what's going on, especially Peter was adamant to Mark, write down how many mistakes I made, how slow I was to understand, how difficult it was for me and for all of the people around us to understand what was actually going on. We were astonished, but we were not wise. The other point that doesn't come in these first sequences, but does come in the next few chapters, is Jesus' authority is not only over, the, over spirits, it's also over the physical world. He has authority over illness, and we see that, we'll see that in next week's reading. He has authority over the sea, and we'll see that in a few readings. So he has authority over the things that affect human beings and also over what we would call nature or the cosmos. There is no limit in Mark's telling to Jesus' authority.
concluded this particular scene for a few reasons, I think. Why does he spend so much time? You know, he spends more time talking. It's only a minute or so, but he spends more time telling us about what happened in that synagogue than he does on John's ministry, on the calling of the disciples, on the healing that evening. It is, it's not huge, but it is larger than everything else. So why does he do that? I think it's because he's wanting us to ask that question that the congregation in that synagogue asked. What new teaching is this? And he wants his audience, because when you hear things uh, in, sort of in the live moment, the questions that you hear and the audience reactions, as a listener, you hear and react many, in many ways the way the congregation will react. So he wants the listeners in this church and in all of the churches that heard this before to, to be in the position of the listeners and, and observers in that synagogue, to be astonished, to ask, what is this new teaching? To hear how others reacted. And it's part, I think, of a larger plan. This, this is not just a, a, a little piece of story. It's a plan that, or it's a section that leads up to that declaration that I talked about before, where Jesus has traveled throughout uh, Galilee, which is sort of the north portion of, of uh, Israel, and has even wandered a little bit outside of Israel. And scene after scene, sequence after sequence, fame and, and astonishment spreads. So finally, it's people are coming to see Jesus from essentially all over the Middle East, almost. Mark talks about a whole series of countries and cities where people were streaming to Jesus to, to try to listen to him and understand what was going on. And so Peter sits down his disciples, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus sits down his disciples and he says, so who do people say that I am? And they give him this very kind of wishy-washy answer. Well, some say Elijah, some say, you know, John the Baptist come back from the dead, some people say this. And then he goes in for the bores into them and says, but who do you say I am? And that's when the first time when Peter finally declares, you are the Messiah. So this, this scene, this uh, um, narrative, this moment in Jesus' ministry, and the ones that came before, and the ones that come after in the next few chapters, are all leading to that question, which Mark would want his his congregations to be asking themselves, who do you say that Jesus is? And you would want them to be responding with Peter, you're the Messiah. But like in a good movie, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. If we come back to this moment, what is this new teaching? Well, like I said, Mark has already told us in the title, but he's also already told us um, few verses earlier when he says Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming and he says time has been fulfilled the kingdom of heaven has drawn near repent and believe in the gospel and I think this is what made what he was saying in that synagogue so different from the other teachers of the law from the other teachers that they'd heard other teachers and I think John talked about this last week other teachers would be talking about the future day of the Lord, the future kingdom of God, the future 
um, revelation, full revelation of God's grace and blessing on, on Israel. Jesus comes in and says, that actually starts right now. The day of the Lord is dawning right now, right in front of you. And I think that's what astonished people. And that's why they found it so incredibly moving. He, he said it in words, and he said it in deeds, both in that synagogue. The power of the Lord, the gospel of God, the kingdom of God begins right here, right now. And that's what I think the new teaching is. 